Good morning. It's good to see you all. If you're one of our guests this morning, we want you to know that you're most welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. I have um, just one quick announcement. Um, well, really kind of a, a couple. Um, but, but one is... Uh, We've talked, we're talking more frequently about this, this app that we have that you can get connected to, to, uh, to church through, um, the Church Center app. And you can go and download that on your smartphone. And I'm starting to hear rumors that some of you are doing it and you're running into some issues and you can't figure out how to do that. And if you don't come and talk to me, I can't help you. So shame on you. Shame on you. But to those of you that are nerdy enough, you figured it out on your own, I'm glad that you're doing it. Now you know stuff that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, so if you start hearing from somebody else, they've tried to get this thing worked out and they can't figure it out, and you don't get on to them, then shame on you too. Um, but thank you for, for checking it out. Um, another thing is we're going to have some baptisms uh, later on in the service. And if you find at that point in time that you are not in a good spot to be able to see, which is that window right over there, um, you, are, you are welcome to get up and move. You don't have to do that right now. Um, but, but when the time comes, if you want to move so you can see better, you're welcome to do that. Would you guys stand up with me? And I'm going to read a scripture and we're going we're gonna to begin together. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your 
surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone I'm no
them are For I have not the strength to praise you near enough For I am nothing I am nothing without you And take my
we thank you for the life that we have because of your son. We thank you that we can know you, that we can walk with you. We ask this morning that you would be near us, that you would be honored by our hearts, that you would draw us close together, that you would teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. And if you're one of our kids, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. accepted Christ as his Savior and as his Lord and he will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. <laughs> and so Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and I was the Holy Spirit. Go, George. This morning, uh, we have accepted Christ. Well, good morning. I thought I thought that was pretty much the best introduction to our subject that I could ever say. Uh, we're going to be talking about baptism. We're in, in uh, because we are going to celebrate baptism with several several people today. I thought it would be a good idea to have a little bit of a deeper dive, so to speak, into what baptism is all about. I heard a few groans down front. Josh liked that one. Um, and so I know we have a lot of family here that that may not know me. My name is Matt. I'm uh, the associate pastor here. So welcome. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, you know, baptism was around before the church. It's been around a long time. The idea of baptism. In fact, uh, this picture up here um, is, is one outside the temple that you can find in Israel. They believe this may have been one of the ones uh, outside Herod's temple, I should say, um, that when Peter gave his, his sermon and, and thousands of people came to Christ and, and were baptized, this may have been one of the ones that they used. Now, in Jewish history, it's called a mikvah. And, and so you, it was a ritual concept of, of related to cleanliness and community. And this one here was even older, uh, about... A, a, they consider this to be uh, a part of the second temple. If you remember whenever uh, they rebuilt um, the temple, um, historians believe this, this may have been one of the ones that was a part of, of that second temple. Uh, and so when it, when it came to the Jewish lifestyle, so much was about community and cleanliness. And, and, and when you read through the law, in the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus, uh, you, you see a lot of things that, that uh, a part of the ceremonial law code that, that if you uh, were, you know, to trip up in some area as far as uh, a disease uh, or, or touching a dead thing or uh, things that were that in many ways were public health codes to, to keep the community from having disease go rampant or, or to just communicate uh, an object lesson that, that God wanted the people of Israel to understand, there was usually a time period of which you had to wait, you were you know, quarantined or something, we, we all know what that's like now, and, and before you re-entered worship. And so whenever you went to the priest, who were the public health officials of the time, they would have to examine or, you know, did the rash go away? Has it been long enough since, you know, whatever it was that, that, that 
made you ceremonially unclean, then you would enter into the waters of baptism. So it was done many times over a lifetime. And so when John the Baptist shows up in the New Testament, that's the reason why when people walked out to the river and saw John the Baptist baptizing people, you don't see someone going, what is he doing? So the concept of baptism was already established in the Jewish mind. Now, being out on a river and the fact that, that John was calling for repentance was a new thing. He had, he had bridged that gap from just simply you touched the wrong thing out in a field or you got a rash or, or a disease to let's look at your heart. And so John the Baptist was calling out people for their separation from the community of, of in relationship with God. And, and what, what did they, you know, how had their lives been going? that they, they had a separation from God, and we call that sin, and it's something that we are all born with, passed down. It's, it's part of our human brokenness, but it's a very real problem, and, and so John the Baptist was there to make a way to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah that would come to ultimately solve that sin problem. And, and so if we're going to talk about baptism, we kind of have to start there. And in fact, we're going to, as we go through scripture, we're going to see um, uh, really the story of baptism and how Jesus then used it to, to teach us uh, about new life, about walking in new life, about obedience, about faithfulness. And so we're going to start that story by looking at another bridge as John the Baptist bridge baptism from the Jewish way of thinking to how Jesus is going to pass it on to us. And he does that by modeling baptism for us in his own baptism. And so open up with me to Matthew three, and we're going to see the story in Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. And in Matthew three, we see John the Baptist doing what he had been doing, baptizing people for the repentance of sins, calling people out to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. And then to his surprise, the Messiah shows up. Now you can understand that he, his reaction would be, this isn't for you. You know, this, this is not why we're doing this. And you see that very clear as we open up to chapter three, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus from Galilee, or came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognized that this didn't fit. Why? Well, because Jesus didn't have a sin problem. Jesus was not born of man. Jesus didn't inherit sin. He did not commit sin. He didn't have anything he needed to repent of. So John kind of holds his hands up and backs away and says, no, we need to reverse these roles. You should be baptizing me. Well, Jesus's response gives us some of our first understanding of what baptism is all about. But Jesus answered to him and said, let it be so for now. In other words, just maybe this is too, you know, not quite it. But John, just humor me. I have a point I'm making. Just just do this for me. Okay. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean there when he says, for us to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus is modeling something that will continue throughout his ministry, and ultimately we will see uh, in, the, in the Great Commission that he is now taking something that was a well-known you know, ritual custom and, and beginning to repurpose it and help, helping us understand that th this is some, somehow an act of, of obedience, this is an act of faithfulness, of submission. 
You see, he was there to carry out the Father's will. He was there to carry out the Father's plan of redemption laid down from the beginning of time. From the very first sin when when God told Adam and Eve that one day there will be a Messiah, there will be a Redeemer King that will come and take care of this sin problem, Jesus is now beginning that claim. He is ushering in the messianic age in this moment by submitting himself to the Father's will, to the Father's plan. Then he consented, John the Baptist consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So you have the Father giving witness and approval to the Son, who is in submission to the Father, while the Spirit... Is present. So you see this trinity involved in this stamping in the history of mankind of saying, this is it. The Messiah has entered the scene. And he comes not as a conquering king, as many of those who were in line to be baptized thought he would, but instead coming as a suffering servant, which is why the words of God are so critical there. When he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, those that were standing around that knew their Old Testament scriptures, it would have sent alarms off and it would have made them go back to Isaiah 42. In fact, Isaiah 42 verse 1, I want to put it up for us, where it says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So isn't it interesting that, that their belief that the Messiah, the messianic age would, would come with a sense of justice to finally right all the wrongs in their mind, that meant throwing off the oppressive Roman regime. And before then, every other occupying country just happened to be Rome at the time. And so when the Messiah does actually show up, God himself gives approval to the submissive suffering servant of Jesus. He would not be a conquering king in that moment as they saw it. He would come to conquer sin and death, the true enemy, the true oppressor, the true thing that was holding everyone down and keeping them separated from entering into a relationship with God. Jesus claimed messiahship here, and God gave witness to the fact that this is my chosen one, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Look at his obedience, look at his submission. And so Jesus models not because he had anything to repent of, but because this is what he wanted us to see. This, this benchmark idea, this, this marker is important. And in fact, we see at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry, if we flip all the way to the end of Matthew to, verse, to chapter 28, we see a mandate. We, we first saw the method and now we see a mandate of baptism. If we go to, to chapter 28, we kind of see two bookends of his ministry that involve baptism in both sense and also involve the Trinity in both, both sense. Look at, at verses 19 and 20. Actually, I think it's starting in 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Jesus, in submission to the Father's will, carried out the plan of redemption. He went to the cross. He carried the sin of the world, of all humanity, a sin that he did not earn, a punishment he did not deserve. He became sin for us so that he could pay the sin debt for us so that we may be redeemed and and be forgiven of our sins, allow us to have once again communion with the Father. And in doing so, it says that when he was a suffering servant and willingly humbling himself, then he was lifted up and now he reigns and now he has been given all authority to come before his followers and say, now go do what I have shown you to do. Go make disciples. Now understand something here. When it says go make disciples, comma, baptizing, teaching, the baptizing, teaching are characteristics of what a disciple looks like, not how one becomes a disciple. It's a really important concept because we, the church, have messed that point up time and time again. And we'll, that will become more clear as we, as we move through this morning. But they are characteristics of the believer. And we have to ask ourselves, why? What, what was the point in this? Why did Jesus say this? Now, the teaching side, I cannot kind of understand. Uh, we understand that a characteristic of a disciple of Christ is that they have experienced new life, forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' work on the cross. And now they say, now what? What am I supposed to do now? I, I, my life is new. I, how am I supposed to live? So the disciple says, I will teach you what Jesus taught us. And so through the centuries and through his word, we sit and we learn and we grow. And the Holy Spirit fills us and teaches us and, and, and refines us. But why do we got to get wet? <laughs> That's the question at the end of the day is, well, what does ha- getting in this tank of water have to do with any of this? Well, I think you combine the two concepts of, of why did Jesus do it to model for us the importance of it. But what does Jesus love to do? He loves to repurpose things and he loves to do things that he knows will benefit us as flawed human beings. And I don't know about you, but my memory is not very good. You know, uh, when it comes to my relationship with God, anyway, I remember all the bad stuff I've done. Those haunt me. I'll remember, you know, you know, certain times that I've accomplished something. But when it comes to my walk with God, it's very easy to forget what God has done in my life in the past. And that's what the enemy tries to do to walk into the believer. He knows he can't steal you from the father's hands, but he sure can confuse you. He can distract you. He can make you so down on yourself that you're no good to the kingdom of God. And so a tangible thing like standing in front of other believers and, and getting dunked, nothing magic about the water, nothing magic about the Jordan river or any of those other holes in the ground that they filled with water. But Jesus understood that there's something about that tangible experience of standing up in front of other believers, proclaiming faith in Jesus. And as we're going to see in the meaning in just a second, to, to see, to tie into, this is what it's all about. So that one time later, when the enemy comes alongside you, says, you are not truly his. You are not truly a child of God. Look what you did. Or look how this world is just a mess. How can you possibly, possibly believe the promises of scripture? Well, there are certain things in my life 
that stand out at that point that I call upon and say, no, there was a point in time when I stood up and I may not know how it all works. In fact, Paul called salvation a mystery. The fact that God can come into a broken, flawed human being and redeem him and make a new creation, that's a mysterious thing. But I can remember tangibly standing in front of a group of believers and saying, I have given my life to Jesus. That stands out. I think Jesus knew we needed that. And he knew that it would be an important element of joining into the community of Christ. These, these young men that are going to come and, 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 and stand up and give testimony to their faith. It's an element of unification of the body of Christ. It's not a requirement to be in the body of Christ, but it's a characteristic of being a disciple that I follow after the model of Jesus. And I understand this mandate that as we go out and make disciples, this is part of the conversation. As we understand the meaning a little bit more, we, we get what this is all about. And, and there are several places you could go to in the New Testament to understand the meaning behind the symbolic nature of somebody pushing you under the water and picking you back up, which I'm glad the second part is present. Peter talks about it, about how it's a picture of salvation. He kind of lines it up with the flood and the ark and understanding. And he even is very specific in a very fisherman way to say, it's not about cleaning the dirt off. It's not what it's all about. Paul does it in Colossians. He also does it in Romans. And that's where I want to go to look at the meaning. So we, we've considered the model of, of baptism and Jesus's baptism, the meth or the mandate as, as Jesus calls us to make disciples and baptize them and teach them. Paul tells us a little bit about the meaning. And we see that in Romans 6. Now it's here that Paul is using baptism as an illustration. He's using it as a metaphor to teach believers on how we are to walk in this new life, how we are to be dead to sin. He was a big proponent of preaching grace. And there were people that did not like that idea, that concept, because they felt that people would take advantage of grace. And that they would just say, well, if I've been forgiven, I can go sin however I want. But there's plenty of other places in scripture where in, in, in the brain class that I was in this morning, we talked about that, that if you truly understand being forgiven, you're not just going to run around and do whatever you want. You understand that your life is now not your own. You've been bought with a price and you, there's a purpose behind your redemption that God is going to use you. So I'm not my own. So the concept of abusing grace is not really a, a, a true one. If you truly understand grace, but Paul is communicating something here to the believers in, in Rome to say that here, here's, here's what's going on. Yeah, it's a mystery of how our lives are changed, but here's how that plays out. As you walk in newness of life, we need to remember something that I died to sin, just like Jesus died on that cross and was buried and rose again. That in fact, when we think about the meaning and symbolism of baptism, that resurrection should come to mind. Look with me at just these two short verses out of his really long conversation, but the two I want to focus on in chapter six, verse three and four is this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him and by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul expresses the beautiful meaning of baptism, of why Jesus picked this, this symbolic act so that we might be unified in the one true work that made a difference. When Jesus died and was buried and conquered sin and death by rising again, we as believers, when we come in faith in that act and we call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we are given new life, that there's a reason why all throughout the book of Acts, all the new, the people that believe immediately jump into the act of baptism because it was such a symbolic way of publicly standing up and celebrating this newness of life. Death no longer reigns. We no longer have to fear it. We no longer have to worry about what happens tomorrow. We can fully trust in God because Jesus has taken care of the two biggest enemies in our life since the beginning of mankind's sin, that is sin and death. If you are here today and you have not taken Jesus up on that offer of forgiveness of sins, I would just implore you, as Paul does, to say, be reconciled to Christ. Be unified in his death, burial, and resurrection. To call out to him and say, there is no act, no ritual, no ceremony, no thing I can do to absolve my sins, to get past my sin debt, because it's a debt I can't pay, but I can call out to him for forgiveness. And in his grace and in his love, he says, I will forgive you. He will call you a child of God. And you can walk in newness of life. And now we can live with this hope that we too might walk in the newness of life. It restores the joy of our salvation. You know, it's my thought in, in thinking about what are we going to do? What, how, how are we going to address this idea of understanding baptism all the way? It's an interesting concept because it, it breaks us into these categories and an understanding of there are those that baptism is way far in the rearview mirror. It was something you did and you've not moved on. And as I said, it can be that marker that you call upon, but at the same time, it gets fuzzy the further it goes back, right? And there's those of us that it's a new thing, and it's still exciting, and there's, and there's, there's some that have trusted Christ, but for whatever reason, you haven't followed him in baptism. And so when, when Paul teaches us the meaning of it, when we are about to watch it, and every time you do watch it, it can be a remembrance, much like we talked about last week with communion. I think that's why people say, you know, in, in the marriage counseling circles, that it's important for a married couple to go to a wedding every now and then. Right? If you've been married for a number of years, every year you have this thing called an anniversary, and that's the one time you go look at your pictures. And you think about it. We had this goal of watching our wedding video every year. It lasted one year. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, now we don't have a VCR, so it, you know... Actually, I think, I think Matt Nevue turned, a, turned it into a DVD for us, but we don't even have one of those now. So I don't, I don't know how you keep up with that. But every time I go to a wedding and I watch someone else get married, I'm reminded. And the joy of my marriage is restored. And in the same way, when we watch someone else stand up and say, I too have given my life to Jesus. I too want to stand up in front of you. Every time we see a little boy dunk himself, we get excited. It's, it's funny, but it's like, that's what it's supposed to be about. The excitement of it. Newness of life. This is an, a miracle, a mystery. And we are reminded of that in the meaning 
of baptism. Now, what about the method? Because there's a methodology to it. And I want to take us over to Acts chapter 8 for that to finish up. Now, you notice that I've developed this acronym for you. You might think it's alliteration, but it isn't. Whenever you are, are going to try to help someone with their understanding of baptism, you just say, mmm. <laughs> and then you'll remember, okay, Jesus modeled it, and he gave this mandate, and there's meaning behind it. But there's also a method, and the method is that it goes belief, then baptism. And I've already kind of hinted at that, but we're going to look through in, in Acts chapter 8 to really get an understanding of this, because it is one that is confused in our society and in the church. Because it's the tangible thing, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, that's the thing I need to go do, and forget that all throughout scripture and all throughout the beginnings of this infant church, from the moment Peter stood up to those that were present calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus, that same crowd was his first audience for the first sermon, which I've spoken to some rough people, but that would be difficult to share the gospel about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to the people that killed Jesus. I, that would be a difficult church service. But it says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said, what are we, we going to do? And he said, believe. And then a whole bunch of people got baptized. So that is the methodology. And, and so there are several of those throughout the book of Acts that you can go to. But I really love Acts uh, verse nine, chapter 8, verse 9. And, and we're going to be reading about Philip in this chapter. Uh, it kind of has a segue between Peter and Paul in the book of Acts and the way it, this is wrapping around Paul's uh, you know, conviction and, and becoming a believer himself. And, and Peter kind of starts to drift into the background. But Philip kind of comes into the spotlight here. Namely, because this is a critical juncture in the, in the story of the church. That up till now, most of the believers had been Jewish in Jerusalem. And now... Philip, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you know, Jesus said that we're supposed to go to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Where are we on that? How's that going? And all the rest of the disciples just kind of shrugged. And so Philip said, well, I'm going. In verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, that's an awkward sentence because we're not exactly sure what is being referred to here. The word great is capitalized because uh, from what we understand, this may have been, and the early church fathers believed this to be, a guy named Simon Magus. And he was, he was one that was known to be a, a prolific heretic and false teacher in the, in the early church. Um, but he uh, practiced some, some sense of sorcery or, or uh, magic that, that he called great, this great power. It's kind of related to Gnosticism, if you remember that. It was a, this, this mystery cult that only certain select people could truly understand if you were invited into the club. And so he had this. And in Samaria, he had, he had gripped their heart, and they had, they had looked upon him and, and followed him, and he... he, he seemed to have something that they wanted. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, so we have this 
false teacher who was uh, essentially an, a, a tool of the enemy, of Satan, uh, sent to do amazing smoke and mirrors for these people to distract them from the work of the gospel that was about to go down in Samaria. And so Philip and some of the other disciples, they start preaching the gospel. That is a testimony in itself of the power of the gospel, that this guy who was a tangible force to be reckoned with is over here doing his thing. Philip shows up and simply says, Jesus. And everybody says, we want that. That seems better. And so they believe in Jesus and were baptized. You see this methodology, this belief, then baptism. Even Simon himself believed. And, even, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the magician got one-upped. And so he sees everybody else getting baptized, and he says, I guess I'm going to do that. But then there's a turning point in the story in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on here? And this doesn't really have anything to do with our subject, but it's such an odd thing. I thought I should clarify what, why this is so important, maybe why the enemy was so big on trying to distract and confuse what is going on. You remember the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down on all the apostles and Peter stands up and preaches. That was the thing that Jesus had said, wait for the coming Holy Spirit. Then you will receive power to go do the great commission that I had asked you to do. But in the great commission, he said, you will go to Samaria and the ends of the earth. They hadn't done that yet. Many, in many ways, maybe God had not lined up the timing yet, but he also knew there was some deep-seated racism in the Jewish people about Samaritans. And we've you know, every time we talk about that, we kind of unpack that, that they, they were this other group of people and they avoided them like the plague and they would walk around them and they considered them worse than Gentiles, people that were outside of the covenant relationship with God, unsavable, untouchable. And now the Holy Spirit is falling on them in a obvious way. I, I refer to this as kind of a secondary Pentecost. I, I, I like that concept because it's meant to be a sign and witness by God himself and the Holy Spirit to all the other believers of saying, I said the whole world. This includes the Samaritans, people that you may not like and don't have a common interest, but I'm sending you to them as well. And look, he makes it a big deal to have the Holy Spirit fall on them so they can step back and go, okay. Jesus is active here. The Holy Spirit's active here. But Simon sees this thing that is meant to, to give the church this second wind. And it does. It then launches them. And, and next you see Paul go out into all the Gentile nations. But instead, Simon sees it and says, huh, there's some sort of ritualistic power happening here that I want. Now, in, in verse 18, now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part 
nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Notice he prays that the consequences would not happen to him. It's not a prayer of repentance. And so we're left having no idea what happens to Simon. As I said, early church fathers who wrote of this Simon Magus, if it's the same guy, apparently he doesn't follow in repentance. Apparently he goes off and, 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 and tries to continue to enact destruction and false teaching. Or maybe it wasn't him and this Simon does repent. And we don't know. We're not given the end of the story in scripture. But I think there's things we can learn about Simon when it comes to baptism and our own walk in newness of life. And the first one is that when we call for baptism and, and a believer stands up, we are reminded that the act of getting wet does not replace a sincere and true faith in the one true Lord. That's why we combine a testimony with it. That's why we say, why are you being baptized? Who is Jesus to you? Because certainly it is within the realm of possibility for someone to stand up, go through the act of being baptized, not truly have a relationship with God. And so we want to reinforce that idea that baptism is not how we find salvation. We find it in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because we as humans, I think it's just part of our sin nature, we tend to confuse ritual with relationship. And whether we want to say it's whole religious groups and, and aspects of Christianity that have done this, or me, when I confuse attending church, or I confuse reading my daily devotional with truly desiring to have a relationship with Jesus. It's so much easier to just de become dependent on the act, right? It's, it's a tangible thing, and I can look at it and say, oh, I did that today, I'm good. And I know I can do it with the wrong spirit, with the wrong intent. And that is what Peter calls out, right? Your intent, Simon, your intent. Why are you here? Why are you joining this body? Why did you stand up and give witness and then seek to make money off it? Peter calls out his motivation. He calls out his heart because Simon got wet with the rest of them. If it was really all about that, then that's what have, that would have been the end of the story. But it was more than that. In fact, if there's confusion on your part, if you grew up in a, in a background of being taught that baptism was a requirement for salvation, let's just put that on the table for a second and say, okay, yes, this, this ritual, this ceremony is required to, to find salvation, to have a right relationship with God. Well, I would say that there's some one major conflict in scripture to the point that I don't, I don't know if I could trust it because a whole lot of places were told about grace and faith alone. But also, if that act, if that thing I need to do was so critical, it seems to be missing from the gospel message. In other words, let's move away from baptism and all the stuff that might go along with that and just simply say you had to push a button. There was this button somewhere, and you had to push that button. Yeah, you had to have faith, but you had to push the button too. 
It seems as though if I were writing about salvation, I would include the fact, don't forget to push the button. Okay, there's Jesus, there's the gospel, there's all this, but then there's a button. Find that button. It's critical you find that button and push it. And that may seem laughable and ludicrous, but anytime we say Jesus plus, that's what we're doing. We're essentially saying, oh, there's this other thing. And right now it happens to be baptism because that's what we're talking about. But we love to add things to Jesus. But the writers of scripture are very clear. Faith alone, grace alone. And so as we go to celebrate this this morning, understand that it is just simply faith. And that they are giving testimony to faith that it is a characteristic of the disciple to follow the Lord's example in baptism. So I wrap up with, if you haven't been baptized, why not? It might be fear. Maybe you were as a child and that was a great thing for your parents. And there was an, lots of reasons why we baptize children. It's not just one. There's, we can't, there's many different reasons for why that happens in different Christian backgrounds. But we still are reminded of the method here. Belief, then baptism. That's why we call it believer's baptism. And so as I wrap up, as I implored those that don't have a relationship with Christ to call on him, also consider, and maybe there's an adult in the room that's been, been a follower of Christ for years, and you're thinking, it's, it's been too long now. I always see these little kids getting baptized, and then me, I'm going to get up. Hey, every day is a good day, right? To follow Jesus in faith. And in fact, baptism was meant to be that first step in obedience, not the last step. And so these children, as I pray in just a moment, and as the worship team comes up, and, and I'm going to go ahead and let the, the families know it's time uh, to go ahead and transition out there, we encourage them and we get behind their walk. So let's pray for them this morning. And I want to, again, if you're going out there to help some of these kids get baptized, this is your cue. Dear God, we lift up these that are coming to be baptized. We thank you for their faith. But I also lift up those in this room that are right now struggling with faith. Maybe they haven't yet been able to take that step and call out to you. I pray that your spirit would invade their heart today. And I pray for those of us that are believers, but just have, have just not been able to get to that point of baptism to be able to stand up in front of people and, and give witness to their relationship with you. If, and if that is something you're leading them in, I pray that whatever obstacles might be in the way, that you would intercede. So we thank you today for giving us this gift of baptism, this, this tangible thing that we can look back on and remember when you did a work in our lives, that our joy of salvation might be restored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. They've still got a minute to get ready, so we're going to learn a new song. So you guys stand up with us.
seat. It's an exciting day to get, be able to uh, look to God's word at what baptism says. I want to thank Matt for bringing in the word to us and then to have uh, four candidates today for baptism that have all uh, done a brief Bible study on that and been able to talk that through and process it so they can understand what God's word says about baptism. And they are four candidates that have all placed their faith in Jesus Christ, as uh, Matt said, belief and then baptism. And now as they are walking in newness of life, they want to uh, express publicly that they are followers of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're gonna do today. And our first candidate is Dylan Federico. Come on down, Dylan. Good. Stay right there, buddy. And uh, Dylan is going to, Dylan is the son of Nick and Carrie Federico and brother of Nicholas. And uh, Dylan, you want to face me for a second? <laughs> Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized today? To show obedience to him. All right. We are glad that you're here.
Dylan Federico, based upon your profession and faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, our next uh, candidate is Graham Mahart, and he is the son of Nathan and Julie Mahart. We'll let them transfer here. All right, Graham, if you'll come on down, if you'll stand on that last step for us. It'll bring, this is Graham, and this is Nathan. Graham, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized today? Um, because God's words tell me to. That's exciting. I'm glad that you want to live in obedience to what God's word says. Okay, Nathan. Proud of you, buddy. Um, based on, do we go this way or that way? This way. Yeah, turn around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because of your profession, I am very, very happy, and it is my joy to baptize you. Hold your nose. It is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Excited, buddy. Okay, you can go ahead and leave. Congratulations. Thank you, Dave. Okay, we have two more candidates coming in from the same family, and these are Bennett and Bentley Frederick. They are the son and daughter of Will and Katie Frederick and their little brother, Baker. So, Bennett, if you'll come on down, just stand on that last step. I've got two questions for you, buddy. Bennett, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Yes. And why do you want to be baptized today? Because it is in obedience to God. All right. We're glad that you're here. And now, uh, Bennett, based upon your... Turn around, buddy. Face that way. There you go. <laughs> based, based upon your profession, I baptize you... Cover your nose. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bentley, if you'll come on down. And stand on that last step for us. All right. Bentley, I'm glad you're here today. Bentley, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Yes. And why do you want to get baptized today? Because I think God and Jesus want me to, and because it's a form of obedience. That is awesome. We're glad that you're here. Okay, well, if you'll turn around and face the other way. Based on your profession, your profession, I uh, baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Awesome. Awesome. Great job. Thank you. 
Would you join me in praying uh, for them and actually renewing your own commitment to help disciple them to Jesus mm -hmm. as they come up through the children's program and the student ministries and all of that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this joy of being able to see uh, children today declare their faith in you and to be reminded of the joy that we possess in Christ Jesus and to be able to uh, call them brothers and sisters, to see them that way. And we pray that you would be with them as they walk in newness of life. They expressed in various forms today a desire to obey you. We pray that you would empower them through your Holy Spirit to obey you, to become more like Jesus as they walk with you throughout their lives. And we thank you for the grace that you have given them to come to know Jesus at such an early age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close with a song, um, so you kids can either stand right there and sing as loud as you can, or you can, they're going to just stay right there. Yeah, we don't want them finding their family or something like that. <laughs> Till that stone was moved for good 
have a good week. Thank you.